Think about the last time you had a cold. Your nose is stuffy, your sinuses ache, you feel like you just got hit by a truck. You go see your doctor. See if there's something you can take for it. Maybe an antibiotic. I would say most commonly when people are requesting antibiotics but they don't need them, it's probably for uh, an acute respiratory infection or illness. Dr. Robin Reister is a primary care physician in Texas. She knows this scene all too well. So in the wintertime, it is probably at least once a session, somebody will come in saying, you know, every year I get sick around the wintertime and uh, I just need to get my Z-pack and then I get better. People like to use that word. I think it makes it sound more fun than a scary antibiotic like azithromycin. Z-pack. Sounds like a little candy, like another name for Pez. And that's part of the problem. People like to pop them like candy anytime they get one of those pesky colds or a flu. It feels like a little extra security. And besides, every time you've taken them, the cold definitely went away. Except that's what colds do. They go away with or without your Z-Pack. The common cold is caused by a class of viruses called rhinoviruses. Antibiotics are useless against viruses like a cold or a flu. Instead, they take on infections caused by bacteria, which are usually a lot more serious, like pneumonia, strep throat, or ear infections. And yet, primary care doctors face a ton of pressure from their patients to prescribe antibiotics for every little sniffle. And that has some serious consequences, as we'll hear in today's episode. Which is why responsible docs like Dr. Reister try to reason with their patients. Well, in my mind, I start to go through the possible diagnoses that, that might actually require antibiotics. And uh, it's usually pretty simple to actually eliminate those things. So I would say, look, you don't have pneumonia because you don't have a fever and your lungs sound normal and you're not short of breath. You don't have strep throat because your throat looks normal or we did this rapid test and it's negative. You don't have an ear infection because you don't have symptoms of the ear. So I usually go through and eliminate all the things. I tell them all the things I've eliminated in my mind that would require antibiotics and tell them you don't have these things. I have good confidence that you don't have those things. And have you ever had a patient who was just insistent? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so how, how does that play out? So if I do all that, some people are just aren't listening to me and say, listen, this is what I need. I need this every year. So then I usually would say, if I want to be dramatic, which I've done quite a few times, I would say, I took an oath to first do no harm. And it is my medical assessment that if I prescribed you antibiotics, I would be doing more harm than benefit. Uh, significantly more harm than benefit. So I cannot break my oath and I cannot give this to you. First, do no harm. It's the most memorable line in the Hippocratic Oath, the guiding ethical standard all doctors swear to. But antibiotics are supposed to help you. So what's Dr. Reister referring to? What's the harm in a little bit of extra medication? Well, antibiotics, like all medications, have side effects. Some of them can be really dangerous, like vision loss, liver or kidney failure, or seizures. An overuse or misuse of antibiotics can lead to something even worse. Stern out of the frankly disturbing news from the Centers for Disease Control late today, a drug-resistant superbug that the medical community has long feared. It's called the superbug, but there's nothing super about being infected with MRSA. The head of the CDC says it is the end of the road for antibiotics unless we act urgently. 
You might think I'm gonna tell you these new stories are overblown, but I'm not. This stuff is real. It's deadly, it's scary, and it's getting worse. Superbugs, also known as antibiotic-resistant bacteria, are bacteria that one or more of the medicines we've used to treat them can no longer kill. They account for nearly 2 million infections in the U.S. every year, killing 23,000 people. The CDC is putting numbers on the problem. They say 2 million Americans get sick with superbugs every year. Scientists are predicting that by 2050, superbugs could kill 10 million people a year. The media is trying to panic you, but no one seems to be listening. Right now, they sound kind of like a fire alarm that's been going off for a while. You hear the sound, you see the lights, you look around to see if anyone else is starting to run. But everyone just keeps doing what they're doing. And because no one else is freaking out, you go back to doing what you're doing, even though the alarm is still screeching at you. But it's time to pay attention. I'm not trying to panic you. I'm trying to get real with you. Because we're the reason this is happening, and we've got the power to stop it. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Abdul El Sayed. Today, Superbugs. While you've probably heard of antibiotic resistance, many of us don't know how it works. So before we get into anything else, let me explain. Bacteria are all around us and all over us, literally everywhere. They're usually harmless, unless they get into a part of the body they shouldn't be, like in our muscles or blood or brain. That's when they cause infections. Antibiotics are designed to kill different kinds of bacteria in case that happens. They all work in different ways, targeting different parts of different bacteria. And every time we use an antibiotic, we expect that if we use the whole course, that is, take all the pills our doctors told us to take, we'll overwhelm all the bacteria's defenses and kill it off completely. And that's usually what happens. But sometimes... Bacteria can mutate and evolve new defenses that make them resistant to our antibiotics. Every time we use antibiotics we don't need, or also fail to use the full course of antibiotics that we do need, we increase the likelihood that resistant bacteria cells, superbugs, multiply and spread. That's because we kill off all the usual bacteria that were there competing with the resistant ones. Without that competition, the resistant ones just multiply and take their place. Now, over millions and millions of courses of antibiotics, we're starting to see the evolution and spread of these superbugs. And when they get into parts of the body that they shouldn't be, they're causing serious infections that are difficult or almost impossible to treat. And that has real human consequences. You don't have to take my word for it. My name is Tanya Hotz, and it's not even really my story. It's my daughter's story. She went to the ICU and she stayed there for five months. Tanya Hotz lives in Tucson, Arizona. She's a nurse and a mom. Her daughter's name is Addie. And we're bringing you their story. A harrowing chain of events that, as implausible as it may seem, could happen to any one of us. It starts in 2011. Well, she was, you know, pretty much like any other, you know, 11-year-old girl. She played softball. She was on swim team. She played guitar. She played flute and piano. Um, She was, uh, oh, she played volleyball. And she was active in the church groups. Um, We were just a normal family. This is Addie, her daughter. I was really excited because summer was coming up. I was going to start swim team. Uh, I had plans for the summer to go to camp with a friend, and we were going to go to her house and swim. We were excited. We had these all these plans, and then everything just got thrown up in it in the air. Can you walk me through what happened? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, one day um, at a softball practice, she complained that her hip hurt. You know, not a big shock. She was athletic. And then a couple days later, her hip was still hurting, but she started to look more like she had the flu. I didn't connect the two things. But I did take her to the doctor. And then throughout that week, you know, this was like maybe Monday or Tuesday. By Friday, we'd seen a couple of different doctors. We'd been to the ER a couple of times. We'd had the paramedics to the house once. And when I finally took her into the ER the, the third time, um, she was already going into septic shock. Addie had a staph infection, a relatively common infection that happens when a kind of bacteria that's common on the skin, staphylococcus, gets into the tissue just under it. For Addie, the staph had entered her body, likely through an ingrown toenail or a scab, and it found a home deep inside her hip muscle, not where it's ever supposed to be. It then made a break for her bloodstream, causing her body to go into septic shock, a potentially deadly response that happens when there's enough bacteria in your blood to make your immune system freak out, like all the immune cells running around with their heads cut off. When did you realize that this was going to be a little bit more than your run-of-the-mill infection. I knew that morning when when she got out of bed that morning and I helped her take a bath but I I, uh, I knew right then I knew that morning I knew that this was really really bad. Tests revealed that Addie had an antibiotic-resistant staph infection, better known as MRSA. While MRSA itself is hard to treat, Addie's was particularly challenging. And as doctors struggled to get a handle on how to treat it, she was put on and then off a number of antibiotics. Never a good thing when you're trying to battle an antibiotic-resistant infection in the first place. In all that stopping and starting, Addie had indeed gotten a lot sicker. She was hooked up to all these machines, her body full of tubes and wires. These tubes and wires can save your life, but they can also carry bacteria. And because hospitals are places with a lot of sick people on a lot of antibiotics, they're a major breeding ground for superbugs. And Addie's battle with them was just beginning. So she started to kind of turn the corner. The fevers went away. We're all hopeful. And then the fevers come back again. And I remember them telling me, we don't know where the fever's coming from. We don't know what the infection is. So it turns out the first infection that came after was an E. coli infection of, of her bladder. And once they figured that out, they put her on you know, appropriate antibiotics for that. It wasn't helping. Once we got the cultures back, we found out that that was a resistant E. coli infection. Another antibiotic-resistant infection, this time E. coli requiring more heavy-duty antibiotics, more trial and error to kill it. I honestly don't remember whether it was four or five different infections, but it was constant after that. Every time she started to spike a fever, they would search for the source of the infection, find it, treat it, then get the final, the final results back and find out that she was on the wrong antibiotic. Infection after infection, antibiotic after antibiotic. Every infection made Addie more susceptible to the next, knocking back her immune system while the side effects of each antibiotic were taking their toll. Eventually, 
Addie had to be placed on a ventilator to help her breathe. She developed pneumonia, her lungs full of the most deadly superbug yet, Enterobacter aerogenes. Doctors determined that in order to save Addie's life, they had to do a double lung transplant in an 11-year-old. Her lungs were ruined. They were never going to heal. But they didn't want to do the transplant before clearing up all the superbugs running amok in her body. We ended up with colistin. And, yeah, yeah, colistin is scary stuff. Scary is an understatement. Colistin is the nuclear option of antibiotics, what we call an antibiotic of last resort. It's extremely deadly for bacteria, but unfortunately, it's extremely dangerous for people, too. It's got all kinds of side effects, like seizures and severe kidney damage, to name a few. For Addie, there was no other option, so they went for it. They dropped the colistin bomb. And fortunately, it worked. It nuked the bugs. The fact that she was able to even survive that lung transplant was huge. Her surgeon later told someone that he would have given her maybe a 1% chance of surviving that lung transplant. But for her, the choice was transplant or death. Lung transplant patients aren't... You always, with any transplant, you're trading one set of problems for another. And for Addie, that's what happened. After five months in the hospital, she'd lost 30 pounds. Her immune system was compromised because of the medication she had to take to keep her body from attacking her new lungs. She'd suffered a stroke, causing her to lose vision on the left side in both eyes. It also changed her personality. And because of all the tubes and wires she'd been hooked up to in the ICU, she suffered permanent nerve damage to her left hand and leg. And yet she was still communicating with us. And she survived that transplant. And she's been living her life for almost eight years. But her life is not, it's not what I'd hoped. You know, I wanted her to, I, I used to tell her, Addie, you can have it all back. She never got it all back. And she never will. What started out as a pretty mundane infection led to sepsis, which led to hospitalization, which led to several different superbug infections, which led to a double lung transplant and a stroke. An 11-year-old softball player became an 11-year-old with severe limitations she'll never fully recover from. Tanya, Addie's mom, suffers from PTSD from the whole experience. Though a nurse, she stays home with Addie. She can't possibly go back to work in a hospital. Addie, now 20, despite her harrowing experience, maintains hope. I've lost a couple friends um, due to getting sick. It was just hard for them to lose somebody for five months and then have me come back in the middle of their lives. With my family, it's changed, but I feel like some of it's gotten better. I have a stronger relationship with my mother, my stepdad, my sister, my brother. Um, I have some really good friends who stuck with me throughout it, and our relationship is great, but it is definitely different than what it was before I got sick. Today, Hattie's getting by, but the lungs she got when she was 11, her body's now rejecting them. And that's forced this young woman, who should be thinking about where to go to college or that cute date she's got coming up, to think about far more serious choices. I know that you've got some, some, some big decisions coming up right now about whether or not you wanted to go through another uh, transplant. Um, how are you thinking about that right now? 
I'm on a page on Facebook with other people who are waiting for transplants. And I see all these stories of them hoping and waiting and then getting um, dry runs where the lungs weren't good or they weren't there on time. And I don't want to live like that. I had eight good years and I think that um, it would just, it's, I've got what I've had and I'm good. Addie shouldn't have to contemplate her future this way. No 20-year-old should. She offers a powerful reminder for us that our choices as individuals, as a society, matter for other people, sometimes in ways we can't even imagine. Addie's spirit is nothing short of inspiring, though. And the fact that she's telling her story, putting herself out there, makes her an activist in her own right. Can you tell me a little bit about what you would say to folks about why they should be using these medicines uh, more responsibly? Well, you don't want what happened to me to happen to your child or your friend or yourself. What happened to me sucks. And my life isn't easy at all, all because antibiotics are used inappropriately. Don't abuse the antibiotics and don't overuse the antibiotics. Everybody just needs better education. We need to understand that these things are not bottomless. That's our part. We have to understand that every time we press our doctors for antibiotics we don't need, Every time they give them to us, we're creating the environment where an innocent kid like Addie can have her life devastated. See, the MRSA that kicked this whole thing off and all the superbugs that afflicted Addie after that one, they exist because of our constant overuse and misuse of antibiotics. We all help to create that environment where resistant bacteria thrive. It's on us, all of us, to be more conscientious. But as a society, there's far more that needs to be done, too. We'll dig in after the break. Horrific infections like Addie's are happening more and more often. Even infections that used to be easy to treat with antibiotics, like urinary tract infections or sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea, they're simply not anymore. Instead of a course of pills, sometimes people now need IV antibiotics. We all have a hand in this, but it's also much bigger than individual doctors and patients or the day-to-day practice of medicine. If superbugs are evolving, that means we've got to discover new medications to treat them. This used to be a priority for us, but somehow that priority has fallen by the wayside. Uh, we had the sort of the golden age uh, after penicillin of developing new therapies, and we stayed ahead of the problem. We are no longer ahead of the problem, um, and therefore we need to put more attention and resources into uh, creating new antibiotics and new therapies to address this issue. Kathy Talkington is the director of the Antibiotic Resistance Project at Pew Charitable Trust. If we don't keep pace, if we don't keep making new um, antibiotics that, af- that are effective and only use our antibiotics when we absolutely need them, we could be looking at a pre-antibiotic era. And that's frightening, both from uh, in this country, but in, uh, around the world uh, as well. Antibiotics haven't been around that long. The first one, penicillin, wasn't used on patients until 1942, and it was revolutionary. But innovation hasn't been keeping pace in recent years. The current pipeline that we have is not adequate. It's not, uh, we don't have enough of the antibiotics that we need to address uh, uh, both current and emerging uh, infection, uh, potential resistant bacteria. Currently, we have 42 drugs in our antibiotic uh, pipeline. And if you compare that to cancer, for example, there are about 1,000 in that pipeline. 
I asked Kathy why the development of new antibiotics is lagging. We may have gotten a little bit complacent, um, and it takes 10 to 15 years to develop new therapies, um, and the science has gotten harder. At first, we were sort of tweaking around the edges of new antibiotics and were able to uh, find new therapies and, and, again, stay ahead. What we need now is sort of whole new classes of, of antibiotics, um, and the science around that is hard. The superbugs we have now, for example, are often what's called gram-negative bacteria. They have extra defenses, two-cell walls, for example, which makes it harder for antibiotics to penetrate. Working out the science of how to defeat these difficult bacteria isn't easy. Plus, it is super expensive. And guess who we need to spend the money and take the time to research and develop these new antibiotics? You guessed it. Big Pharma. Last episode, we talked about their absurd pricing practices and incentive structures. And Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal asked a question that's worth remembering right now. Would you want to spend a whole lot of money developing an antibiotic where someone's going to take it for, you know, five days and get better? For society, the answer is obviously yes. But if you're a pharma exec, that answer is no. And that's the problem. Pharma is incentivized to invest in research and development for medications that a lot of people need to take for a long time. Things like blood pressure meds, cholesterol pills, diabetes drugs, Viagra not curative meds like antibiotics. If the market is not there, uh, it dampens the amount of time and money and energy that goes into it for antibiotics, and, and that's the challenge we're, we're trying to address here. On top of that, Kathy laid out another problem. Antibiotics, uh, once they make it to market, if you develop a successful antibiotic, we are going to say, don't use it. Put it on the shelf until we absolutely need it. So you're going to need to put the same amount of sort of time and energy into developing this therapy. And then we don't want that drug to be used very often. As, as we've talked about before, we need to make sure we only use these when absolutely necessary. And so we'll want to limit the sale of, of that in a sense. That's a really important point. Responsible use of antibiotics would require us to use these new drugs as little as possible to avoid creating bacteria that are resistant to them, too. If you're big pharma, you really don't want to make a new drug to watch it get used as little as possible. Put that all together, and you see we've got a giant problem. Pharma, who we rely on to research and develop the medications that we need as a society, basically has no incentive to make meds that only a few people, no matter how sick they are, like Addy, need for just a short period of time. And so they don't. I asked Tanya, Addie's mom, what she thought about that. I get needing to make money. I get that corporations owe their stockholders. But at some point, are these people not people? Do they not have kids and grandkids and people they love? Do they not understand that even for themselves, I mean, even if you're that selfish, you could be the one in the hospital. There's the human cost, which should be enough, but there's also the financial cost for the entire healthcare system. Her first hospital bill for the five months in the ICU was almost $8 million. I know the insurance company didn't pay that. They probably paid closer to $3 million, you know, once they'd done all the math the way insurance companies do with hospitals. But still... So how do we fix this? We need um, 
government leadership. The market has failed at this point in helping to stay ahead of the, the antibiotics. So we, we need to be creative in thinking about how, how to approach this problem. So it's going to take the administration, it's going to take Congress, it's going to take private sector, pharmaceutical companies. So um, I think all of those efforts would help move the needle. Kathy's saying it a lot more nicely than I would. Pharma isn't going to get off their asses until government makes them, either by rewarding new innovation or punishing the failure to invest in it. But let's not forget, we, all of us, have been part of the problem too. I asked Kathy about how everyday folks could be a part of the solution. They could do a number of things. They, you know, heightening their awareness and their knowledge of this problem and communicating that to their friends, their family, to their policymakers. Part of the challenge we face is is getting attention about this problem. And, And the more people we can have aware of it and recognizing the importance of it and the severity of it, um, the better off we'll be. So I think, you know, having those conversations with their their physicians, they should ask the question, do I need this? Is this really what I I should be doing? Are there some negative consequences to this? And I think the other important point is this is a solvable problem in the sense that we we have stayed ahead of the problem before. We can do it again, but it's going to take an ongoing commitment. We've been here before. In fact, this arms race between humanity and the superbugs tends to flow in cycles. After bacteria developed resistance to penicillin, the first antibiotic, there was a massive effort in the 1950s to research and develop new antibiotics. By the early 1960s, there were several new antibiotics on the market. Overconfident, pharmaceuticals turned their attention elsewhere. Once again, the bacteria caught up, prompting another round of antibiotic stockpiling between the 60s and 80s. And again, we got overconfident, leaving us where we are now, at a crossroads. It's not something that we will have a one silver bullet solution to. Um, Because of the nature of the problem of resistance, it's going to take an ongoing commitment for, for years to come. When we put our our mind and our energy and our resources into solving some of these critical public health problems, we can do it. And I think that's the case here, too. We've done it before. We can do it again. Now, there are some new experimental treatments on the horizon, but they carry some real risk. You might have heard a little about CRISPR technology. CRISPR could help rid us of diseases like cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, and even HIV and cancer. Think about that. Scientists think they have a way to fight infections when antibiotics fail. Doctors report increasing danger from drug-resistant infections, and they're hoping a gene-editing technique offers a solution. The technique known as CRISPR may help to create super predators to go after superbugs. Scientists are now experimenting with using CRISPR to reprogram bacterial DNA so that those bacteria, in effect, go into self-destruct mode. But DNA engineering is new, and let's face it, kind of scary. We don't really know what the side effects might be. After all, this means re-engineering the DNA of really harmful bacteria. And there has been some movement on reducing unnecessary antibiotic use. One place where unnecessary use was quite common in the past was in livestock feed. Farmers used to put it into animal feed because it helped livestock grow, but it also contributed to antibiotic resistance. So in 2017, the Food and Drug Administration made it illegal. That's a great step in the right direction. 
but we've still got a long way to go before the battle against superbugs is won. The alarm bells are ringing, and we need to pay attention. We've got to act. Next time on America Dissected, more on Big Pharma. We'll talk about what happens when drug makers, the companies that won't invest in new life-saving antibiotics, instead pump harmful medications into communities that don't need them. We're slicing into the opioid epidemic and why we were so unprepared for it. They use a clear enemy in, in the opioid crisis. You know, they go after the drug companies and their production of the medication. They're not looking at the increase of all of these opioids as an uh, indictment on what's going on in America. As an epidemiologist, I know a thing or two about virality. So if you like our show, make sure to share, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. And tweet or Instagram me at, at Abdul El Sayed, and I'll throw you a repost. America Dissected is a production of Crooked Media. Our producers are Austin Fisher, Carrie Jr. II, and Katie Long. Andrea B. Scott is our story editor. Our sound designer is Daniel Ramirez. Production support from Allison Falzetta, Elisa Gutierrez, Kara Hart, Daniel Porcerelli, and Tara Terpstra. Fact-checking by Dr. Nicole Aiello. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and Mukta Mohan. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Tanya Sominator, and Tommy Vitor. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening.